Welcome to Religion and Global Challenges, the podcast of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme that is brought to you by the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. My name is Marlene Schäfers and I'm a British Academy Newton International Fellow at the Faculty. Today's podcast continues our exploration of the different ways in which people navigate religious difference in their everyday lives. We will stay within the geographic area that we already heard about during the last episode, when I was joined by Dr. Anush Suni, who talked about the reverberations of the Armenian past in the lives of Kurds living in contemporary southeastern Turkey. In this episode, we will hear from Dr. Andrew Bush about how Kurds in the autonomous Kurdish region in northern Iraq encounter not only religious others, but also negotiate the differences between pious and not-so-pious Muslims. Andrew has just published a book investigating precisely this question, which is called Between Muslims, Religious Difference in Iraqi Kurdistan, and came out with Stanford University Press in 2020. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me, Marlene. It's great to have you here as we are on Zoom connecting between Brussels and Abu Dhabi. And before we dig deeper into this question of uh, religious difference, as you discuss it in your book, I would like to ask you to briefly introduce yourself and your work to our listeners. Sure. So I am trained as an anthropologist and my work in anthropology began actually as an undergraduate at uh, James Madison University in uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia, where I initially conducted an ethnographic research project with Iraqi Kurdish refugees throughout the calendar year of 2002. And that research project was the, my inauguration into ethnographic research, as well as my first acquaintance with Iraqi Kurdistan. So following that experience, I decided to complete a PhD in anthropology, which I did at Johns Hopkins, uh, starting in 2004 and finishing 10 long but very happy years later in uh, 2014, during which course I finished the, the majority of the ethnographic part of the research that went into this book. Uh, and then since 2014, I've been largely sort of teaching at New York University Abu Dhabi for several years and held a research fellowship there as well. Uh, and I also started working on another project that I have devoted the last two years to, uh, splitting time between a fellowship at Harvard Law School and fieldwork, both in person in 2019, supported by a grant from Winter Grant, and then also uh, remotely uh, in 2020. And that project really looks at uh, Islamic law. So that's, uh, that's a whirlwind tour of my background. And so in your book, which is what we are going to talk about mostly today, you trace the lives of a number of different individuals who are nominally Muslim, but choose to turn away from Islam. And, and you look at how this shapes, how they interact with others, often others who are more pious than themselves. And, you know, I want to, to talk to you about what it might mean to think about religious difference as this difference between pious and not so pious Muslims. But before we get to that, could you introduce us and, and the listeners to the setting of your fieldwork, given that in your book, you really make the everyday a core site for your exploration of this uh, negotiation between pious and not so pious Muslims. So I think it's quite important to understand how fieldwork unfolded for you, given that this is such a central focus of your work. Yeah, that's a great question. And I love that because, um, I mean, you're right, uh, everyday and ordinary life and ordinary relationships are a thematic focus of the book. And they were something that I was uh, interested in during fieldwork as well 
But I think it's so important that uh, to recognize that we often don't know in advance how we as researchers are going to enter or sort of access this space, right? What is it that our interlocutors are going to invite us into and what is going to be shown to us of the everyday is something that, um, that relies a lot, I think, on the contingencies of uh, fieldwork and who we are as researchers. So to think about uh, the sort of political context of the work that I was doing, as well as what happened in the fieldwork, I think it's important to note that when I did preliminary work in the years 2004 and 5 and 6, when I had sort of small research projects, but my real preoccupation was to go and, uh, and learn Kurdish language, there was sort of a, a decreasing sense of instability. So in the beginning, when I went in 2004, I wasn't sure that I would be able to go back and continue research there. But when I went in 2008 and 2009, there was a general sense of sort of acceleration, right? So there was accelerating uh, foreign investment. There was accelerating productivity on local markets. And there seemed to be sort of a lot of opportunities, even if people were increasingly unhappy with the distribution of those opportunities and unhappy that patronage to political parties seemed to determine what sorts of opportunities would be available to one. So that context, though, of a general sense of optimism is something that in retrospect actually became clear to me because in 2014 and, uh, and following that, given the conflict between the Kurdistan regional government and the federal government in Iraq, uh, political relationships have deteriorated, the economic situation has deteriorated, and it's really become, uh, you know, like a, a lot of scenes of everyday life are now a lot more fraught with sort of bare economic struggle. But another shift that happened across that period of time was that when I was doing fieldwork in 2008 and 2009, there was a relatively stark difference between the political parties that identified as Islamist, sort of revivalist and reformist, sought to implement some form of Islamic governance, and the two major political parties that cast themselves as secularist. And so this idea of attention at the level of public discourse between Islamist and secularist was something that was very common um, again, at the level of public discourse and the discourse of intellectuals who would have interviews on the radio or more often would write newspaper columns, etc. So my fieldwork began in part as an exploration of the intellectual traditions that these public speakers inherited and participated in. So what does it mean to practice critique in an environment like this? where there is on the one hand um, an inheritance of a sort of broadly secular, uh, and I'm doing scare quotes here over Zoom, right? A broadly quote-unquote secular nationalist tendency uh, alongside very strong Islamist tendencies. So as I was interested uh, in the question of intellectual production and how it is that critics learn to be critics and sort of where this fits on what one can think of as a sort of spectrum of, of religious and secular... Uh, the more and more interviews I conducted, the more and more tired I became of what appeared more and more like uh, a sort of straining to achieve uh, a particular secular vision. But to go back to what I was saying about how the ordinary or the everyday actually appears to researchers in the course of their fieldwork... In my case, it was a matter of completing sort of formal interviews, but continuing the conversation and keeping my notebook open and talking to my interlocutors 
as we would sometimes literally descend from a private study upstairs into the shared space of family life where I and my interlocutors were engaging with their family members. And there, the sort of what appeared to be at one level, you know, the sort of stark opposition between Islamist and secularist at the level of public discourse looked very different when the quote-unquote Islamist was not necessarily a member of a political party, but actually a sibling, a daughter, a mother, a father. And there, the sort of, you know, these stark oppositions were, were not more stable in the sorts of moral and ethical sensibilities that were visible at the level of everyday life uh, were quite different. So, you know, what I hear from this and which becomes very clear throughout the book is that your book is quite different from a lot of the anthropological literature on, on Islam or Muslims that we know, which has focused very much on personal or collective projects of piety and then often sets this against the backdrop of what is described as this quote-unquote secular modernity. But your book you know, as you just described in this metaphor of descending from the private study into the space of the ordinary, makes a very different intervention by focusing on Muslims that are turning away from piety, but they do not necessarily embrace an entirely secular identity, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, you know, it was one of the sort of temptations throughout the research is I had to think about You know, over the past 10 years, we've seen a gradual emergence of an anthropology of secularism. And I do think that the book makes an important contribution to that. But I decided in the end that the mode of its contribution is actually an attention to the always already inescapably uh, religious dimension of everyday life. So if there is, on the one hand, you know, I mean, I, I rely so much on the work that has been done in the anthropology of secularism that describes the sort of breadth and from the perspective of state governance and even from the perspective of a lot of public intellectuals, there is a coherence to the project of uh, secularism in the modern world, right? And I don't deny that that project is there in its coherence and that it is deeply pervasive in everyday life, but uh, there are dimensions of experience in which uh, that project becomes incoherent, right? And I think that that scene of moving from public discourse into ordinary life, moving from sort of established key terms of political discourse into the intimate histories that people share at the level of the household, right? Not being able to either abandon that political discourse, right? But also seeing that it doesn't match up to uh, the particular pleasures and anxieties and difficulties and discomforts that do actually characterize the relationships between uh, the Muslims who take up a path to piety, more or less influenced, right, struggling with or against those Islamist movements, and the Muslims who, uh, who turn away from that, those projects of self-cultivation. And so, you know, you were explaining that a lot of your fieldwork unfolded being taken into the ordinary lives of your interlocutors and not putting the notebook away whenever that happened after a formal interview or that kind of thing. So could you introduce us a little bit into these ordinary lives and show us some of the ways in which pious and not so pious Muslims in Iraqi Kurdistan relate to each other? Yeah, it's a good question. I like that because, uh, you know, as you know, the book is organized around uh, sort of figures. There are three 
primary interlocutors that I did ethnographic research with, and then there's a figure from a literary field and a figure from the sort of realm of political discourse. But your question suggests that I could also sort of organize it around different ways that the Muslims, and I always insist, actually I should pause here and say that, that I insist on the longhand description. You know, like the Muslims who, who don't embrace projects of piety but have uh, sort of ethical visions that they implement in their life in different ways is compared to, right, in a sort of a broad category, as compared to the Muslims who are deeply pious, which is to say, in some form, they're committed to the practice of prayer or fasting, even if they will also insist that, you know, the true piety of fasting isn't in observing the letter of the law, but and catching the spirit of, of Ramadan, which is maybe appropriate for our conversation today, since we've just passed the midway point of Ramadan. So that way of thinking about ways that those committed to projects of piety and those who are turning away from projects of piety, the ways that they relate to one another is an interesting way to think about this. I think uh, two or three ways of relating really sit at the heart of the book. And one of them is this mode of giving advice. So the Kurdish uses a word of Arabic origin, nasihat, which I translate as advice, but can also mean uh, sort of moral reproof sometimes. And the idea that pious Muslims will see Muslims giving up, passing up the opportunity to pray, passing up the opportunity to win rewards in paradise and fulfill divine obligations by fasting. That's something that, um, that occasions sometimes a sense of hurt and of loss and of concern. And there is a particular mode of intervention that, uh, that people take up in different ways of advising those who are not praying that they should pray, right? Advising those who don't uh, wear a headscarf during Ramadan, for example, to wear that headscarf during Ramadan. To advise those who don't fast that maybe they should. And what's interesting is that, you know, when we think about how this advice appears in the interstices of everyday life between people who have sometimes very long histories in a household together, and sometimes they're simply strangers who encounter one another in public, the affects and the language of response that appears is not always, uh, it's actually rarely that of an appeal to the liberal language of rights. It's very rarely an appeal to a domain of sort of absolute privacy. But there are all sorts of other ways of responding to advice uh, that crops up in, in everyday life. So one of those ways is a deflection. And what I describe in one chapter as the sustenance of sort of as-if relations. So it could be the case that I, for example, am not uh, interested in pursuing piety, but my brother is someone who is interested in that and someone who does on occasion advise me to do this or that or advise my children to do this or that. What does it mean to be in a relationship with him that doesn't require a transparent declaration that I actually have no fidelity or no inclination to pray or fast or whatsoever or to not declare... Uh, the sort of a creed of my own, what I do believe in, but to actually continue in a relationship with him where I behave as if I believe, as if I might one day pray, even if I don't actually have uh, the conviction that that's necessary or that I ought to do that. And I think 
I mean, I used the word deflection a moment ago. That's not the right way to describe it. But that sense of the fictiveness of the relationship is something that is quite essential to many ordinary relationships, but is something that looks quite different, again, from the way uh, we think about the sort of tension between Islamist and secularist in the, the broader sphere of political discourse. But then alongside those moments of discomfort and anxiety, there can also be moments of profound pleasure. So it can be the fact that uh, some people in a household where people have different orientations to Islamic tradition very frankly acknowledge what the tendencies of others are and accommodate them in different ways and are not sort of angered or annoyed by them. So what does it mean that someone who doesn't pray will say to his praying family members before they go out for the evening, have you prayed yet? Like, make sure you do your prayers and then we'll go out, right? Not just some sort of imposition, but actually because he knows that this gives them pleasure. Or what does it mean that someone will, say, frankly acknowledge that someone uh, isn't fasting and say, do you want something to eat? Do you want some tea? Uh, and, and know that actually in that acknowledgement is a degree of accommodation and a kind of pleasure in sharing everyday life together, even if that everyday life is constituted across lines of religious difference. What might be challenging to some um, listeners or readers of your book is this idea that religious difference appears here not as a difference between adherents of different faiths as we are you know, used to it in Christian, Jewish, Muslim relations, that kind of formulation. But religious difference here denotes a different kind of set of relations and differences. So what's your take on religious difference here in applying that term that we are used to from quite different contexts to that particular context? Yeah, that's great. To me, obviously, maybe, I think it's one of the most exciting ways to think about forms of religious difference today, to actually think beyond these broad categories that are established in academic discourse around these sort of identitarian conflicts, either sectarian conflicts uh, sort of within Islamic traditions, or as you mentioned, relations between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. I think that the discourse of religious difference there so often turns on this idea of, of sort of transparent declarations and clarity and communication, uh, sort of declarations of truth and the recognition of rights. And what interests me about the kind of religious difference that appeared in the ordinary lives to which my interlocutors invited me is that it was a very different set of affects, uh, again, that I mentioned earlier, that formed the foundation of relationships. And I think actually offers a very different way of thinking about what the politics of religious difference is. So it's true that when we use the term religious difference, within the academic literature, it carries this, you know, this set of associations that we've described. But also, uh, in the sort of ordinary usage of the term in Kurdish as in English, to simply say that something is different is a much simpler sort of locution. And yet, that description can be an occasion for pleasure and something insignificant that, that people share with one another. It can also be a deep burden, right? It can actually be a source of strife and conflict between people at an intimate level that actually makes everyday life very hard. I, I fantasize sometimes about doing the work of sort of what would it mean to actually craft 
a political theory out of the kinds of ordinary experiences and affects that uh, that I was fortunate enough to witness and participate in in Iraqi Kurdistan. And I think that that sort of research could really do a lot to reset uh, what often feels like a way of talking about religious difference that's deeply entrenched in these ideas of identitarian difference. Yeah, definitely. I feel like your intervention really opens up an entire new space of thinking about these kind of relations that rely on this play of, of difference and sameness. And and even though it seems in a way very intuitive, but somehow it gets sort of shut out by these preconceived identitarian categories that we have. Absolutely. And let me just add one thing to this. I think it also has to do with the context of intellectual production, right? And where the grant money comes from and who thinks that uh, these are viable sorts of projects. And I think very often inquiry into the problem of religious difference is framed precisely from a sort of perspective of the state's need to govern a kind of religious difference that is a cause of a particular kind of social conflict. You know, of course, all that research is is absolutely important and, and should be supported and underlined. But I think that there's also a great, uh, there are many opportunities to sort of rejuvenate the study of religion when we are courageous enough to actually step away from those broad framings and find the smaller problems that maybe don't translate obviously into problems of the governance of religious difference. To move to a slightly different aspect of your book, which is definitely related, but you also identify poetry as a key site uh, where a difference between Muslim selves and others is negotiated. And you look specifically at Kurdish poetry from the 19th century, uh, where you show um, how this figure of the non-Muslim or the Christian, the Kafir, is a key figure in this poetic discourse. So could you tell us a little bit more about how this figure of the non-Muslim other features in poetry and how that informs relations between Kurdish Muslims and others? I guess I should frame it first of all by saying that, you know, as I described my interest in intellectual traditions earlier, poetry was an enormous part of that. So the the language of poetry is not merely sort of an aesthetic expression. It's not merely quarantined to a, a dimension of, say, heritage or folklore. But poetry is a language of power. It's a language that can express and capture and transform an entire cosmos, actually. So to think about poetry as an intellectual tradition that people draw upon in everyday life is something that inspired my research from the beginning and made me attentive to the way that uh, my interlocutors would refer to Sufi poets from the early 19th century in the course of our conversation. And I found that a lot of people who are not committed to projects of piety were nonetheless deeply attracted to these Sufi poetic figures who themselves, right, these Sufi poets would describe uh, the scene of, say, falling in love with a kafir, or they would describe discovering within themselves the desire to become Christian, or discovering the sort of tendency to kufr that lies within themselves. And so after uh, I completed the fieldwork, which involved a lot of reading poetry with master poets and master readers of poetry, I then undertook the study of this poetic tradition sort of on my own in my office, you know, asking the question, why is it that people who are uninterested in these 
pietistic projects and sometimes suffer from the accusation of therefore being a kafir and sometimes actually casually embrace the status of being a kafir and have a whole range of other sort of responses to this idea of what it might mean to be a kafir. So I did this study of, of 17 volumes of poetry that I read almost cover to cover. <laughs> and I was really attentive there to how these very pious Muslim poets described either the kafir tendency or the Christian other or the Zoroastrian other. And I conducted that research in part under the shadow of this beautiful book by Mahmoud Kalpakli and Walter Andrews called Age of the Beloveds, in which they very masterfully read Ottoman poetry from an earlier era and show how the description of these religious identities in poetry actually has a deeply historicist dimension to it and actually refers to a lot of the concrete realities uh, that were shared and contested between Muslims and non-Muslims in this era. So reading the Kurdish poetic tradition of the 19th century under the shadow of that book, I realized eventually that things were quite different, right? That the way the beloved or the way the kafir or the Christian is described in Kurdish poetry could not actually uh, be mapped, right? There weren't these little signs, there weren't these hints of concrete relation to historical relations between Muslims and non-Muslims, even though, as is widely known, Kurdistan was a place of religious diversity in that sense. Well, that's the story, let's say, that's the story that the chapter revolves around, right? Is how, how that relationship between the non-Muslim beloved in poetry, right? The Muslim poet's relation to the non-Muslim beloved was a space of play and imagination that wasn't necessarily translated into the narrow identitarian terms of, of everyday politics. Let us take a brief pause here to actually listen to some Kurdish poetry. What follows is Kurdish singer Rafiq Jalak performing the poetry of Mahwi, one of the most prominent 19th century poets from southern Kurdistan. The line of poetry you're about to hear says... The monastery of lovers is where I'm from, and where I'll stay, despite the flames. I'm just a fistful of kindling now, so what use could I be? For whom?
right? So if I'm reading this poetry inspired, you know, by the question of why it is that people who are uninterested in pietistic projects, why are they still interested in this? I think that the answer is in short that these poets have a vision of Muslim piety that accommodates the presence of the kafir within. And that vision, there's a certain expansiveness, right? There's a certain accommodation of that tendency within the self that seems to have been squeezed out over the course of the 20th century, and especially at the end of the 20th century with the rise of Islamist movements, where instead of the self being shaped by an accommodation of the Kafir tendency, right? And a folding that tendency within to the broader pursuit of piety, we see an Islamist discourse that's all about separating and suppressing the Kafir. And that separation and suppression is then also sort of translated into social terms. And so that stark division between the pious and the impious is precisely a source of aversion to Islamic traditions, more broadly speaking, for those who aren't attracted to the pious projects. And what's then also really interesting is how, again, you show how the poetic discourse of the 20th century is quite different, even though you have nominally similar kinds of figures that appear they kind of descend from this more imaginary status as a source of intellectual, perhaps play even. It descends into a much more concrete and political identitarian positionality where talking about the kafir means talking about the actual non-Muslim or Christian that might live in your neighborhood, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this connects to uh, previous episodes uh, in the podcast, I think. So one of those key figures, I mean, Suleimani is not known as a capital of Armenian political or intellectual life, but there were Armenians living in the city of Suleimani for uh, generations. And although they may have been sort of the concrete uh, historical Christian others whose identity was not analogous to the identity of uh, the Christian beloved in early 19th century poet. In the 20th century, there's one poem in particular that talks about the case of an Armenian who converted to Christianity and the historical sensibility that is revealed in that poem is one that is constituted entirely by the politics of colonial intervention and British presence in Iraqi Kurdistan and the emerging projects of natural resource extraction, as well as uh, religious reform that are what are familiar to a lot of scholars as part of the colonial era. Another, you know, I think really fascinating point that you make is that we've talked now mainly about poetry as an object of study and how you use that, you know, to make certain statements about the constitution of the Muslim self or the relation between Uh, Muslims and non-Muslims. But you also use poetry beyond that, not just as an object of study, but also as a method and an analytic framework. So can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that and how that might be useful for thinking about religious difference more broadly? Yeah, so I think that one thing that's very important to me, I mean, throughout our sort of conversation, we've talked about the contrast between the way that contrary tendencies, contrary affects and feelings find a place in everyday life in a way that public discourse tends to thrive uh, around the polarization of those terms. And I think that poetry for me became an analytical framework. And I should add parenthetically, 
uh, it's not poetry in general, right? But this particular poetic tradition and a particular aspect of the Kurdish poetic tradition, including Kurdish poetry sometimes translated from Persian and in conversation with Persian poetry, it also has this sense of embracing paradox and contrary tendencies. And it gives one a sense of texture. It gives one a sense of style. It gives a sense of coherence to human experience that happens at a different register than the coherence that appears in the sort of declaratory statements of political discourse uh, around, say, identitarian politics or around nationalist politics. And so taking this poetic tradition as offering an analytical framework means that, as you mentioned, poetry isn't just an object of thought, but poetry opens up doors to thinking. And the way that poetry brings paradoxes together doesn't present a puzzle that has to be solved through declaratory language, but it presents a feeling and a texture that one has to learn to feel and go along with. And I think that that, you know, that sense of that, that we learn by feeling things differently is also, I hope, one thing that, that the ethnography does, right, is that uh, readers walk away from it not so much with new, clear declarations about the place of Islam in Kurdish history, although they will get that, but that they also walk away with it better equipped to uh, feel contrary tendencies, right? And know that that contradiction doesn't have to be resolved, but can be productive and can be uh, sometimes cruel and sometimes kind, uh, depending on how one comports oneself with it in everyday life. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Religion and Global Challenges about the ways in which pious and not-so-pious Muslims craft shared everyday lives in Iraqi Kurdistan. You can find more information about this and previous episodes, including recommended readings, on our website at interfaith.cam.ac.uk slash podcast. Do subscribe to our podcast if you like this show and stay tuned for coming episodes in which we will turn to the intersections of religion and climate change. Music